Today, we're kicking off the LATAM Power Women in Tech series, and I'm thrilled to welcome Isabel Galera, partner at Canary, one of the leading early-stage investors in Brazil that has recently raised $100 million Fund 3, and whose portfolio include the likes of Loft, Bazaar, and Alice. Isabel, welcome to the J-Curve. Thank you, Olga. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for being with me today. I'd love to start with some history and context. How did you get into venture capital and become one of the key drivers of LATAM tech ecosystem as part of Canary team? Um, well, I'm Brazilian. Um, I'm actually from the south of Brazil, a city called Curitiba. I live in Sao Paulo now. I'm an engineer. And uh, I've been uh, in a few industries, let's say like that. Uh, within my career. So I started in banking. Then I went to consumer goods and industry. I had a interesting path in a startup as well. And then um, I joined uh, Endeavor Brazil here. Um, and that that's where I met Martin and Florian, who are the founders of Loft, the founders of Printy, and the founders of Canary, actually. So I worked with them very closely uh, at my time in Endeavor, and they actually invited me to join Canary team uh, back in 2018. And I was the first person to join Canary that was not a founding partner. Uh, so I've been with the team since uh, almost the beginning. We actually lived uh, through the change of this Latin ecosystem. So uh, it's a great path, very fun. And how did that multidimensional experience, you mentioned Endeavor, you mentioned consultancy, you mentioned startups, impact your investment mindset and style of investing? I think many uh, experiences in different industries and different companies uh, give you a holistic perspective on actually working and uh, operating. So uh, being able to to be on the other side of the table, operating and dealing with different people and actually uh, building teams and uh, hiring people and uh, uh, discussing strategy in different industries. Those uh, data points, they give you an holistic perspective and they give, enrich your experience. So um, it was, uh, I think, uh, everything I did uh, bit up to what I believe, which is actually finding the best people. And uh, that's my investment style. I, I like to uh, getting to know and access and finding quality talent and very good people with ambition uh, to build great businesses. And we actually bet on those people. So I don't have necessarily an expertise uh, on a, in a specific industry or business model. We're more uh, in a generalistic approach, but uh, uh, we do know how to find the best people, how to bat on the best people and how to partner with them since the beginning. So uh, my, my, my career, um, I was lucky enough to be able to connect and to relate with different people. And that gives me a wide network to not only uh, finding talented people, but also connecting uh, different and talented people with each other. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Canary made people front and center of its investment philosophy. And you guys always say that you specialize on supporting the best founders. But can you paint me a picture of who the best founders are from Canary's perspective? And also, how do you know if the person or team is the best? And what is your framework of evaluating their potential? Yeah, we invest in teams, not businesses. Uh, Canary uh, is the first institutional investor. So we back people that don't have a business yet. And you know as well as I do that businesses, they can pivot, uh, change, they can close doors. People stay for life. 
And we are here uh, for the long term. VC is a long term game. Uh, so our job is to partner with the, the best people for our game. And that's important to state that uh, every different investors uh, value different things. So when I say best, uh, I'm looking for uh, uh, more compatibility of our criteria here at Canary. And we have more than 40 criteria in, in people analysis frameworks. So we divided into six buckets. So uh, we analyze the background of the team. We analyze founder market fit, ambition, sales ability, uh, reputation. Uh, we analyze what we call skin in the game. So how invested is, is that team uh, in that specific business? Uh, and our framework gives us a guideline. So uh, of course, there's a ton there are tons of uh, subjective information that we gather uh, while we, we meet uh, different teams. But, well, the data points and uh, the criteria and the scoring we do, they actually help us make decisions. Uh, when you think about the qualities, maybe interpersonal qualities, maybe professional background theme that is ultimately present among majority of founders that you bet on, what would be maybe top three qualities that um, come to mind right away? Well, um, we look for, for people that uh, uh, have the capabilities of actually building something really, really big. So uh, we look in their journey, what have uh, they already built? So what are the legacies that that team specifically have already built in the world? So uh, we uh, ask our network to, to help us find it. Uh, we understand how uh, that people, that team inspire other team members. What is their leverage in terms of building a talented team, for instance? Uh, we also see uh, ambition as a very, very important uh, criteria for us. And ambition means different things for different people. For us, it, it means that that, that team, specific team uh, want to build a huge business, want to buy the incumbents that are already uh, uh, in the ground here in, in Latin America or want to, to, to open capital in NASDAQ uh, in in a, in a very successful way. Do you find that the ratio of uh, first-time founders to maybe serial entrepreneurs changes as your business grows and as the ecosystem in Latin America matures? For sure, yeah. I think uh, we, we just closed our third fund. Uh, so we started Canary in 2017 with Fund One. Uh, fund One, I think perhaps more than 90% of the companies, the teams that we've invested in are first-time founders. Uh, for third fund tree, we started investing fund tree, I think was August this year. And 80% of the teams that we've invested are repeat founders. So, Whoa, 80% of teams is a very impressive dynamics of serial entrepreneurship. So basically, many, many founders went on to start the next company in the course of five, six years. Exactly. Yeah, we have more liquidity in our ecosystem. We have more talented people. So we're seeing this shift. And uh, it's an interesting approach because uh, most of those first-time founders that started their businesses in 2016, 17, um, they had a, a relevant exit to uh, maybe incumbents or other tech companies here uh, in, in Latin, and they they made uh, a lot of money. So they're now going to the, uh, let's say, binary approach of actually building a huge, huge business. So it's an interesting uh, shift 
into this ecosystem. I think Brazil is a bit before other countries in, in Latin America, but uh, we'll see that in other countries for sure. The base and the history of Canary is fascinating to me. Uh, like you mentioned, the firm was founded just about five years ago, and now you are in the fund three with $220 million assets under management. And the investment focus of this brand new $100 million fund goes beyond Brazil to the countries like Mexico, Argentina, Colombia. I'm wondering what were the elements that surprised you in market evolution and prompted you to scale across the region? We are already in other uh, Latin American countries before Fund3. I think uh, we started in, in the beginning of Fund2. So uh, we want to replicate what we did in Brazil with Canary uh, in other Latin countries. So we believe uh, the opportunity is uh, wide open uh, and uh, we are doubling down this initiative with uh, the third fund. Today, more than uh, 40% of our PO flow comes from outside of Brazil. And that was uh, 0% in 2017. I think the, the greatest surprise is that our premises five years ago turned out to be through much faster than we could have imagined. So uh, in 2017, we were convinced that the region would be a fertile soil to, to grow great businesses. Uh, and we got uh, lucky on timing. So uh, that, that, that conviction came across a couple of uh, pillars. First, uh, we were seeing a shift of talented people towards this uh, tech ecosystem. So we were seeing very good people uh, leaving behind uh, great careers uh, in consulting, IB, or, or even uh, industries, other industries to start their own businesses. So that shift uh, had already started in 2017, 16, 15, but it was a little shy. We truly believed that that would be a major pillar of change. Uh, we also understand that Latin has countries with huge market and we have a lot of opportunities to disruption. So um, we have all the internet uh, penetration uh, ratios. We have uh, a population that is ready to accept new technologies. We have huge markets. We have infrastructure. So uh, for us, it was much more a question of when this was going, this was going to shift than whether it was going to shift. The pace at which Latin America tech ecosystem evolved and continues to attract international growth capital is very impressive. Literally, you wake up every morning and see the story of yet another tech unicorn coming from LATAM, Brazil predominantly, but definitely other markets catching up. You've mentioned that 40% of your deal flow is coming from other Latin American markets. I wonder if you incorporate this geographical diversification in the portfolio construction strategy and how you think about scaling? Do you follow the deal flow or you have certain assumptions around markets besides Brazil? We don't have affirmative uh, actions towards geography, uh, but we do have uh, active efforts to uh, access uh, great founders in different countries. So we don't have a limitation of geography. We don't have a frontier uh, in the region, of course. So uh, we are people-driven, not thesis-driven, not country-driven driven, not market driven. So uh, we want to be where uh, talented people um, is. So for us, it's much more about how do we uh, guarantee access to the best founders or best future founders, uh, rather than uh, looking for uh, a specific company or a specific solution to a specific problem in a specific country. So for us, it's 
the, the, the drive is much more uh, regarding people. Um, in terms of portfolio construction, I think the uh, well, Canary always will follow the same strategy. So Canary Tree follows the same strategy of partnering with the best founders early in their journey, just like funds one and two. We lead their first rounds and follow subsequent ones. The fun part now is that we have more data. So um, that gives us much more intelligence. And that makes portfolio construction more assertive in, of course, our view. So we're privileged to to play the early stage game, which gives us um, access to a high volume of founders and thousands of data points. So we now have five years of information, uh, not only in Brazil, but other countries too. And we can use that to be more assertive in, in portfolio construction, like uh, how much uh, to allocate in a company, uh, in a specific company, first round and a follow-on round. So I think uh, the only major difference of Fund3 is that we have more flexibility uh, towards uh, how much you allocate in the first institutional check. And we have more intelligence to, to, to guide our decisions. I'm too curious because the economics of the early stage funds are very different from the economics of multi-stage funds and this allocation of capital on first round versus follow-ons is a heated debated topic. So I'm wondering what are the, some of the insights that you drew from this five years of a rich data set and how does the ratio look like for Canary right now? Well, you remember I, I, I talked about the 40 criteria we analyze in, in teams. So those criteria uh, will give us uh, basically a scoring of the team. And that scoring, we learned uh, to be pretty assertive in the, the predictability of that specific team to raise uh, another venture capital round. So uh, Canary leads the first one, the first round. And uh, uh, we usually follow uh, the subsequent round, usually a Series A round. So we can say with pretty much, uh, well, assertivity, whether uh, a team will raise a Series A round or not. And we're now in the meaning of um, gathering more information towards Series Bs and Series Cs. So for us, well, it's all about risk and return, right, Olga? So... um, when we uh, lead a first round, we're going for the highest potential risk. So there's no company yet, usually. There's no business. There's no economics. There's no business model validated, no product market fit, so on and so forth. So for us, it's a high risk. But the high risk should, uh, grant, us, should grant us higher returns as well. So uh, for us, that information and that intelligence of whether a company uh, have a, a good probability of raising more capital uh, will lead us, lead us to a good definition of capital allocation towards that company because the ratio of risk return changes uh, with that scoring that we do. But again, we're learning, so there's a lot to be uh, changed for sure. Uh, in this way we do business, and that's why data is only one of the guidelines we use. I believe that uh, portfolio construction can be 
much more assertive with data. Oh, I'm absolutely with you on the necessity to incorporate data and analytics in portfolio construction. And it's pretty fascinating how you leverage data to predict the probability of future raise on a team per team basis, instead of looking at that from averages perspective. I have a related question though, because tech ecosystem is on fire in Latin America and valuations are getting inflated due to existing proliferation of capital coming from growth investors like SoftBank and Tiger Global. Are you worried about union economics of Canary as an early stage investor at all? Well, first, I think uh, it's great for founders to access more liquidity. Higher AUM focused towards Latin proves that investors believe that the returns will be higher too, right? So that's the game. So it's a new dynamic and we're adapting, of course, uh, it worries me, uh, mostly because we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but we have to adapt with our game is to partner again with the best founders first. So that means our core business is to take a risk that bigger firms uh, don't usually take. They don't need to nor want to take a higher risk. So we go first. And that's the, the, the main part of our strategy. And uh, in that dynamic, data becomes even more important. So if we have the possibility to invest before everyone else um, in a company that we can, uh, with some assertivity, predict uh, the future outcome. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, we will make mistakes and we will learn a lot as we go. But again, it's a guideline. So if we have that possibility of investing first and we have this uh, assertivity, uh, we, can, we can make decisions uh, with more quality. So for us, it's all about having our core business very uh, validated and having the possibility to be trusted uh, by the best founders to have Canary first. We truly believe in the right fund at the right time mindset. So if Canary is the right fund for zero to one, all of the other come after us and we are consolidating ourselves as the, the local partner for global investors. So uh, we'll take a risk that they don't need or want to take. It's an optionality for them. For us, it's our core business. I love this optionality versus core business kind of thinking. But in terms of Prorata, like, would you look at the company that raises money at, let's say, 5x valuation step up after you led the round or co-led the round and pass on that just because it's too expensive or you did not face those situations yet? It's all about money allocation. I mean, the price, uh, if we believe the company has an infinite uh, uh, possibility of having a, the best potential outcome, price shouldn't matter. Uh, in the early stage. So for us, it's much more about money at risk than uh, necessarily valuation and Rojadas. Uh, but that approach that I told you about uh, first check allocation, we also replicate to follow on allocation. So uh, again, it's all about uh, uh, money at risk uh, at each individual company. So we do have some intelligence and analytics and predictability towards uh, uh, companies after Series A, Series B, Series Cs. So we can see how our check, uh, our checks, right, our, our money at risk in a specific company will improve, uh, considering the information that we have. So we take decisions about pro rata mostly. Uh, considering that specific intelligence than necessarily 
the price itself. Now, building the data set around Series B and Series C that you mentioned before makes perfect sense to me, as you can apply the same guiding principles to the full-on checks. I'd love to move to a slightly different direction now and talk about the technical system in Brazil. Brazil and Latin America more broadly still perceived as a copycat market, with tech companies localizing business models well adopted in the U.S. and China. Would you agree with that at all? Or would you say that mental shift towards more transformative companies has already happened among local tech entrepreneurs? Well, that's a good question. I think every country has a social, economic, cultural, and political context, individual context. So even if you're inspired by a company in the US, China, or I don't know, Europe, you have to adapt to the local context. So I believe much more in inspire and adapt rather than copy and paste. I don't know if copy copycats uh, in a copy and paste approach uh, actually work. I honestly don't think so. But regardless, uh, I think the most important shift is that talented people with high opportunity costs are moving mountains to solve huge and structural problems. So uh, uh, I think that's the most important thing. I would not care if that's a copy and paste approach or necessarily a very disruptive disruption uh, transformative approach. So for me, it's much more about uh, the end than rather than the mean. And uh, I think the most important shift is talented people founding businesses to impact millions of people and actually disrupt uh, old markets. Would you say there are some unique business models emerged in Brazil or maybe another country in Latin America that were not existed and before and those that do not have a potential benchmark in different markets? Well, um, there's a lot of local uh, regulation, local context that should be taken into consideration. But if you see uh, the, the problem most businesses solve, there are problems everywhere. So it's all about how they solve it. And uh, I think uh, the how, the business model itself, the strategy is not necessarily replicable. So uh, you, you see New Bank, for instance. Well, uh, it's a nail bank. You have banks everywhere in the world. So it's not necessarily a uh, uh, innovative uh, uh, business. But again, uh, it had to grow within the Brazilian regulatory uh, constraints, uh, Brazilian social constraints, Brazilian cultural constraints, economic constraints. So uh, the how... Uh, new bank got there is different than how other banks uh, grow and were built uh, in other parts of the of, of the globe. So for me, it's much more about that. But we do have companies like uh, you know Creditas, for instance. Uh, it's hard for you to find a, a benchmark, clear benchmark for Creditas. Uh, Loft, for instance, you you have open doors in the states, but again, Loft is building uh, a business in a different way because it has to adapt to Brazilian uh, uh, context. So um, I think, I don't think you will find a completely innovative business that no one else made or no one else thought about it, but you have to adapt uh, to a local context and that's where innovation actually is. So you, you mentioned New Bank, you, you mentioned Creditas and Loft. Those are already unicorns and success stories. And those businesses operate in industries that gain a lot of attention from local and global community alike. 
um, when you think about investment opportunities going forward, what are the industries that are waiting to be disrupted and you personally are getting very excited about? I know that you're a people-driven investor, but I'm are there any trends or any markets that catch your attention and make you excited about finding people who could fix those specific issues? I think my mental framework leads me to huge industries with maybe mediocre uh, incumbents, like financial services, for instance, or to ch- regulatory trends that uh, that will uh, open up opportunities. Uh, healthcare is an example. Uh, because of COVID, uh, it opened a, a lot of doors for tech uh, companies to, to grow and to deliver care in a more quality way. Uh, but we also have like global trends that will force uh, opportunities in a global scale, like climate change, for instance. So uh, I, see, I see industries, I don't have a, a preferred uh, industries, industry necessarily, but I do think there's a lot of trends to consider and um, a lot of, let's say, incumbents. If you, if you think about incumbents that are dormant or are delivering a, a very bad service, those are ready to be disrupted. So uh, those are obvious ways. And you have like uh, crypto blockchain and other uh, technology trends that will disrupt industries in a more broad way. So, uh, but again, we are people-driven. Talking about people, what are the ultimate turnoffs when you talk to the founders? And what are the key mistakes Latin American entrepreneurs make when talk to VCs in the region? Talk to me about that, the other side of the coin. Well, I think uh, for me, biggest turnoff is when uh, someone is merely opportunistic about something. So, okay, we have more liquidity. So, uh, I graduated in a good uh, institution and I do have a uh, cool idea and I want your money to start uh, my business, um, but I, I still haven't quitted from my current company. I'm waiting for uh, your decision to to decide my life. So I think that's a big turnoff. Like uh, if you're if you have high ambition and you have a uh, relevant skin in the game, you're there and you're doing it. Uh, so you have that grit. And I think uh, the, the largest mistakes, uh, well, you have to talk to the right investor for you and your company. So that means do your homework and understand what that investor specifically wants to invest or uh, the scope of that specific firm, because VC necessarily is not for everyone. It's not for every business model and it's not for every founder. So, and different VCs have different approaches. So for us, for us, if you don't have a good fundraising strategy and you don't have a compatible fundraising strategy with your uh, investors at the other side of the table, that's a big turn off and uh, that's not going to be successful. So basic homework and, you know, organization, uh, basic tip, but again, uh, is important when you're building an industry that's still very, very early, right? I'm totally with you on the founder-investor fit and coming to the meeting with clear understanding of why the specific investor and what are the synergies. Many founders miss those super important aspects, but again, like you said, the market is still very young. And also your points about venture capital not being the the best funding option for everyone as an excellent one. But now I'd love to move to the rapid fire section. I'll ask you five short questions and we'll appreciate 
appreciate your immediate responses. Let's dive right in. The first question will be, what's the distinction between good and exceptional founder? Well, I, I think, uh, and I don't have the right answer, but I think the, the ambition part. Uh, for me, ambitious founders uh, with very, very high ambition are exceptional. Of course, uh, if you have the other uh, 39 criteria that, uh, that I mentioned to you. What does it take to be a contrarian thinker in venture capital today, especially given the reactive nature of our business? <laughs> yeah, that's really, really hard, actually. I don't, I don't know if I'm a contrarian thinker, but, uh, well, it's hard because there's a lot of liquidity. So everyone uh, is getting funded. Sometimes uh, a company that you said, okay, that's not for us uh, because of that and that uh, gets like a lot of funding, millions of dollars of funding. And we're like, oh my God, what we did. So I think controlling your FOMO is the harder, the hardest part of being maybe a contrarian thinker. Any tips with that? How do you control your FOMO when you see that companies you passed raise millions of dollars at skyrocketing valuations? It's really, really hard. It's like, okay, patient, because long-term, uh, we, we have to think long-term. So, uh, well, we'll see. We, we actually um, monitor our anti-portfolio very closely. So uh, that gives us a false perspective perspective of, of control, but uh, I think it's a good way to think about your decisions and iterate it. But uh, I, I don't have a perfect answer there. Talking about anti-portfolio, what was your biggest failure today and what are the key learnings out of it? I'm still learning. I'm still learning. I don't know, honestly, because, well, we're, uh, we're still in the fifth year of uh, the first fund of Canary and we have five more years to go. So what we think uh, is that our bigger, biggest failure today cannot maybe not be the biggest one or even a failure uh, in five years from now. So uh, for, uh, I, I will wait to answer your question because I could be completely wrong here. Fair enough. Next question. When you think about success, who is the first person that comes to mind? Well, uh, I don't have one person. I think when I think about success, I think about uh, a lot of uh, perspectives. Uh, it's not only professional success. It's not only uh, personal success. It's uh, a lot of, uh, well, parts of me that are important. So I have a lot of people when I think uh, of different parts of success or things that I want from me or from our life. So um, I don't know, maybe um, my partner is a canary. Uh, I, I, I love uh, and I'm inspired by them. Uh, for thinking about every aspect of the way and how we build a business. And that's amazing. I think about my father when I think about, I don't know, being happy. He's the happiest person I know. I think about some of my friends uh, of uh, uh, living their lives very lightly. And I love that. Uh, well, I have a, tons of people that inspire me and uh, uh, I try to learn from every one of them. All that glitters is not gold. Which industries in Latin America that are currently saturated with venture capital could this saying be applied to, do you think? I think, uh, and I could be completely wrong here because trends uh, proved me otherwise, but I, I do think financial services uh, and the way that, you know, credit and uh, the way that it is, new banks uh, specifically uh, are very saturated by, by VC. And uh, I don't know, uh, I think I think twice once when I'm analyzing a company that 
place in a very uh, crowded ocean, uh, red ocean. Thank you, Isabel. I really enjoyed our conversation and can't wait to see more great companies being backed by Canary in the years to come. Thank you for the chat, Olga. It's a, it's a pleasure being here talking a little bit about Latin and Canary. So uh, we're very, very excited about the region. So it's, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for listening to the third episode of The J-Curve. It was such a pleasure to have Isabel Galera as my guest. To learn more about Canary, go to www.canary.com.br. And to hear more from us, follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram at Olga Maslikova with KH. The J-Curve is also available on iTunes and Spotify to download and subscribe. Thank you for being with me today.